The ultra-right-wing majority on the Supreme Court is poised to eviscerate Roe v. Wade, but a movement to fight back against this assault on women's rights is growing and demanding that Democrats in Congress legalize abortion once and for all. Meanwhile, U.S. aggression is stepping up against Iran, China, and Russia. The Omicron variant continues to cause panic around the world. Michigan reels in the aftermath of yet another mass shooting. The United States marks the 80th anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor and more. We need a new system. We need a new society. We need to demand that which may have sounded impossible even a few weeks ago, but is not only realizable, but an imperative necessity. Welcome to today's episode of In the News, our Tuesday show on the socialist program with Brian Becker. It's December 7th, 2021. This is an in-depth look at the biggest stories in the news right now, today, and this week. We look beyond the headlines and expose the distortions in the corporate-owned media. Video episodes of The Real Story are available on Breakthrough News, Wednesdays at 7 p.m. Eastern at youtube.com slash breakthrough news. If you enjoy our show, please support this independent programming by going to patreon.com slash the socialist program and subscribing. I'm Nicole Roussel, here with Esther Ivarum, Walter Smolarik, and our host, Brian Becker. Esther Ivarum is also the host of the radio show and podcast On the Ground at onthegroundshow.org. Make sure to check out On the Ground, which comes out weekly on Fridays. Brian, where do you want to start this week? Well, I think the big news really is the effort by the right wing in the United States, by the Supreme Court, by the majority of right wing lunatics on the Supreme Court to eviscerate women's right to control their own bodies. I mean, Roe v. Wade, which was passed in the early 1970s, is at stake, is up for grabs. And I'm looking at the Washington Post, a major story in yesterday's Washington Post. The title of it is, A Newly Radicalized Court is Poised to Reshape the Nation. Uh, It's a big article by Ruth Marcus, two pages long. Well, just think about that. What does it mean that a radicalized court, we're talking about six individuals have the right, apparently, to overturn the rights of women in this country to control their own bodies. And they're not just poised to do it. We can stop them. I mean, it's not up to them. Why should it be up to the Supreme Court? If it was up to the Supreme Court, by the way, black people would have no rights that white people would be entitled to respect because it was the Supreme Court in the Dred Scott decision in 1857 that tried to expand slavery. It was the Supreme Court that made apartheid in America in the Plessy versus Ferguson case in 1896 the law of the land. It was the Supreme Court that upheld the incarceration of Japanese Americans during World War II. Why would we let and why should we assume, as Ruth Marcus in the Washington Post, is that this radicalized court I mean, what's up with the radicalized court? These are very mainstream, pro-capitalist, pro-Wall Street, pro-corporate, you know, lawyers who 
were sort of shepherded through the political process by the Federalist Society and other right-wing organizations in order to do what's about to be done. Now, I want to talk about Roe v. Wade, which is inadequate. The Roe v. Wade was a decision by the Supreme Court. It was in the Nixon era, 7-2 decision. The court struck down a Texas law restricting abortion. The court ruled that the health of a pregnant woman and potential human life, meaning the fetus, needed to be balanced against a woman's right to privacy. So it's a privacy decision, which now extended to cover, quote, a qualified right to terminate her pregnancy, a qualified right. It's not a woman's right to control her own body. There's a big inadequacy in Roe. The court established a shifting balance over the course of the pregnancy. In the first trimester, the medical judgment of the woman's physician could not be restricted by the state. In the stage between that trimester and the viability of the fetus, the state might, quote, regulate the abortion procedure in ways that are reasonably related to maternal health after viability taken as being the third of the three trimesters, the state's interest in potential human life allowed it to, quote, regulate and even proscribe abortion except when necessary in appropriate medical judgment for the preservation of the life or health of the mother. So again, what's missing here is the fundamental right of human beings who are women to be able to control their own bodies. And rather than take Ruth Marcus's and the Washington Post's word that the radicalized court is about to change the face of the nation, we have to have a fighting movement. And right now, basically, there's not a fighting movement. The Party for Socialism and Liberation and some other organizations organized protests on December 1st. There were protests, Esther, you were there at the Supreme Court. But 62% of the people in the United States believe in Roe v. Wade, believe in a woman's right to have an abortion. That's the majority sentiment. That should be mobilized into a fighting force. And even if it wasn't the majority opinion, when it comes to people's rights, who cares what the majority thinks? I mean, if you have a right, it means it belongs to you. It's something that no one can take away from you. And yet here in the United States, a country that denied women the right to vote until 1920, after the Soviet Union, after the Socialist Revolution in Russia gave women the right to vote and because women were fighting and being tortured in the women's house of detention, but kept fighting and fighting and fighting for the right to vote. Only in 1920, married women were not allowed to own property in most of the United States because as soon as they married, all of their property transferred to men. That's in the United States, the so-called great democracy. Women lost their control over their own property. And if they had the ability to divorce a man, they didn't get that property back. That created a situation of perennial dependency. These are the hallmarks of patriarchy. And when we're fighting about abortion rights, we have to fight against the patriarchy that denies women this basic right that should belong to all human beings and in fact does, which is to control your or their own bodies. Anyway, Esther, you were there. You were at the Supreme Court. Let's keep talking about this issue. Again, this is monumental and the fight is not finished. 
Yeah, so I was on hand uh, last week. Uh, Nicole was there also. And this is when the Supreme Court was hearing arguments in this case, Dobbs versus Jackson Women's Health. And based on the reporting of the people who were analyzing the statements, many experts or observers are saying that, yes, the court is could be poised to overturn this decision. One thing that I think is really important for people to understand is that Roe made abortion legal nationally and making abortion legal nationally was key because before Wade, abortion was still legal in some states like New York. And then like now, 50 years later, the right wants to make abortion a state matter again. Right. So a key point raised by reproductive rights activists who were rallying outside last week was that where you live should not dictate your rights. And if this is a national right and, and now that is very much the case with the most extreme example being what we discussed a few weeks ago, the Texas law SB eight that bans abortion after six weeks before most women even realize they are pregnant. And that encourages kind of like this bounty hunter system for anyone to receive like $10,000 if they report someone having an abortion or assisting anyone having an abortion. So, it's kind of like the wild west out there in terms of abortion law if laws like this can stand on a state level so but it's precisely this kind of infamous states rights argument which we know has been used for all types of like racist and anti-worker laws you know throughout history that the far right justices on the court are putting forth as a way to in effect overturn roe v wade for example brett kavanaugh we have to remember a credibly accused sexual predator talking about, you know, women's rights, ruling on women's rights in this matter. He said during the argument last week that the court should be, quote unquote, scrupulously neutral with respect to abortion rights and allow states to adopt whatever laws they might choose. And his words reminded me of the recent House hearing when Representatives Cory Bush, Pramila Jayapal, Barbara Lee all testified this powerful testimony giving their own personal stories about having an abortion to kind of lift this kind of shame and this idea that people want to put on abortion to lift that and speak publicly about their abortions. Well, anyway, during this hearing, the Republicans there all started talking about states' rights and how these matters should be left to the states. One of the pieces I read, I think it was in Bloomberg, talked about how Chief Justice Roberts wants to use the state's rights argument to perhaps restrict some abortion rights without totally overturning Roe on his watch and kind of legitimizing the criticism that Justice Sotomayor had that, you know, if they overturn this, the court will be totally seen as the political institution that it is because what has changed, what has changed in 50 years, I think she said in terms of the science, the issues of privacy or all the other issues that Roe addressed. So did we have a piece that we want to play from Sotomayor? Yeah, we've got a clip from Sotomayor, that exact clip, and we've also got a clip from Kavanaugh that I'm going to play after that. So here's Justice Sotomayor. Will this institution survive the stench that this creates in the public perception that the Constitution and its reading are just political acts? And then this is Justice Kavanaugh and this is Justice Kavanaugh. I'll reserve my comments for afterwards. I'll let people listen. If we think 
that uh, the prior precedents are seriously wrong. Why then doesn't the history of this Court's practice with respect to those cases tell us that the right answer is actually to return to the position of neutrality? I mean, Esther, there's so much wrong with what he's saying, one of which is if you're going to stick with the, you know, the legalese style of arguments. We don't think that this precedent is wrong. This is good precedent. And also the court, especially justices like Kavanaugh, especially justices that, you know, follow the Constitution word for word or whatever and follow precedent word for word. These are the people who argue that we always have to use precedent. So it's very ridiculous that this is his argument. But second of all, what is, quote unquote, going back to neutrality? You can't go back to neutrality on somebody's rights. These are women's rights. So neutrality on women's rights is allowing them to have those rights, keeping those rights intact. I mean, his idea of going back to neutrality is, oh, well, the Supreme Court will just, you know, we'll step back and let states do whatever they want. But that's actually not neutrality. That's letting states pull rights away from women. And let's not forget that states' rights are a thing in the United States where all 50 states are sovereign except in matters of declaring war, raising a national tax, regulating interstate commerce. What was that about? What were states' rights really about? From the beginning, because the system, the capitalist system was divided in the United States between a system based on slavery and at the time of the revolution, a system where industrial capitalism based its economic profit-making off of wage slavery or wage exploitation meaning, quote, free labor, there was a debate over what was going to happen. And so the state's rights feature was designed to make the slave-owning states sovereign in areas about slavery. And then later, after the end of slavery, it became the state's rights to create a poll tax or other voting requirements where people registering to vote, some people had this, you know, recite the Declaration of Independence, you know, or the U.S. Constitution. And when they couldn't do it verbatim, they lost their right to vote. That would be, of course, the black population in those states. So remember when it, when the uprising against racism happened after George Floyd and, you know, some of the states said, well, we don't want to, like, use military force against the protesters. You know, all of these right wing racists, they were like, no, you have to use force against the movement. You don't have the right as a state. And Donald Trump on June 1st in that conference call with governors was basically saying, if you don't go out and smash those movements, we're going to send the military into your state. So states' rights is only used by the right wing when it's convenient for right wing agendas. And to pick up on on that historical analogy, Brian, I mean, to just give another example of exactly that, when the Fugitive Slave Act was passed in the 1850s, that was a law that said that the states that are free states, right, the states that have outlawed slavery, if enslaved people escape into your borders, you are legally obligated. You have a legal obligation. You're compelled to arrest those people and return them to slavery. So in those few instances where states have actually used the quote-unquote sovereign rights accorded to them by the Constitution to do something progressive, then the Supreme Court and the right wing in the United States has no problem trampling on states' rights. I mean, it's a complete smokescreen and just an excuse to implement the most reactionary, vile policies possible. And that history, I don't think it's a coincidence that 
so many of the states of the former Confederacy are some of the same states with these anti-abortion laws or attempting to restrict these laws. And it really ties into this whole idea of forced birth, right? So it's not just that you are anti-abortion. What these anti-abortion people want is to force women to give birth, just like enslaved women were forced to give birth and compelled to, even after obvious cases of rape or incest, to force birth, to increase the wealth of the slave owner, basically increase the wealth of the country. Because at that point, enslaved people really made up the bulk of the wealth of the country. And this ties into something that Amy Coney Barrett said during the arguments last week. So she said, and you know, I already talked about what Brett Kavanaugh said in terms of the state's rights, but she questioned why abortion was necessary when, quote unquote, women who do not want to be mothers can simply give their babies up for adoption. So under her reasoning, you know, adoption is uh, an easy alternative to abortion. And we have to remember that this Mississippi law that Mississippi is trying to defend, it doesn't even give the standard bullshit clause except in cases of rape and incest. And we already know that concern for a child will not extend after that child is born. And in terms of the unsafe water in Jackson, Mississippi or Benton Harbor or Flint, Michigan, or for women trying to secure health care for themselves or their children. And uh, like I said, you know, these, some of these same States had a systematic way of forcing enslaved women to give birth and Places, especially here in this area, Maryland and Virginia, were in effect breeding plantations, you know, exploiting the bodies of like enslaved young women and girls, you know, forcing their impregnation and forcing them to bear children. And sometimes these babies were immediately taken from them and sold like an object, you know. So, you know, when Barrett, you know, who has adopted children, you know, so nonchalantly gives this type of argument about adoption being an alternative, you know, it ignores this history. It ignores the physical and emotional toll it takes on a woman to carry a baby for a full term, you know, that it turns from, you know, a clump of cells, you know, which legally now can be aborted to carrying a child to full term. That's a child at that point. And then you expect that woman to just give up her child. And that's actually more traumatic for a lot of women than this whole idea that, you know, abortion is supposedly so traumatic. And there was a piece I read in the New York Times by Democratic strategist Elizabeth Spires, who was adopted. And she makes a lot of these really good points. Well, and not to mention, Esther, that along with that, pregnancy is not a, is not a simple thing. Pregnancy is deadly. It can be deadly. Pregnancy can cause hypertension. Pregnancy can cause deep vein thrombosis, pulmonary embolisms. Can You can have postpartum hemorrhaging, heavy bleeding. We also know that infant mortality rates and maternal mortality rates are much, much higher in the black population here in the United States. Right. So, you know, these kinds of arguments are obviously straw man arguments. Then they're, they're obviously, you know, racist and anti-woman, but I think it's important to really, you know, go over as you've done all of these, you know, details of why it's such an insane argument. Yeah. Let me just read a little, a little bit from her piece. I thought it was pretty good. She may not realize it, but what she is suggesting, she's talking about Barrett. 
She may not realize it, but what she is suggesting is that women don't need access to abortion because they can simply go do a thing that is infinitely more difficult, expensive, dangerous, and potentially traumatic than terminating a pregnancy during its early stages. What Justice Barrett and others are suggesting women do in lieu of abortion is not a small thing. It is life-changing, irrevocable, and not to be taken lightly. It often causes trauma, even when things work out. And it's a disservice to adoptees and their families, biological and adopted, to pretend otherwise in service of a neat political narrative. You know, this is one of the paradoxes of pregnancy. Something alien is usurping your body and sapping you of nutrition and energy, but you're programmed to gleefully enable it and be, and you become desperately protective of it. It's a kind of biological brainwashing, and this often happens whether you want to be a parent or not. Justice Barrett is well aware of the kind of biological brainwashing that occurs during pregnancy. She gave birth to five children. And yet she blithely seems to assume that a mother can simply choose not to bond with the child she's gestating solely on the basis that she is not ready to be a mother or believes that she is unable to provide for the child. She assumes that the mother will be supported financially and otherwise throughout the pregnancy, even in a country where maternal mortality statistics are abysmal. And she assumes that children surrendered for adoption will find a home and not a bed in the foster care system. She probably assumes these things because she cannot fathom being in this position herself. These are assumptions that stem from the privilege of being financially secure, having never needed an abortion, and perhaps the assumption that women who do have done something wrong and must face the consequences. So that's Elizabeth Spears writing in the New York Times. You know, in the United States, it was only in 1972 that the Supreme Court finally acted to strike down laws that made it illegal for unmarried women to get contraceptives. That's in the 1970s. When we're talking about what the Supreme Court and what the courts in America and what the politicians in America have done to deprive people, in this case, women, of their rights, we're not talking about ancient history. This is 1972, if you were an unmarried woman, say in the state of Massachusetts, not a Southern state, it was illegal for you to receive distributed contraceptives if you were unmarried. Showing again that the whole patriarchy, the whole patriarchal character of this, women were property, enslaved women were, of course, property. They were, as you said, Esther, these forced births, because after the importation of more enslaved people from Africa after 1808, these so-called breeding farms, especially as you were telling us in Virginia, in Maryland, become dominant as dominant form of capitalism. So in that case, women are property in all ways. Their children are property in all ways. And who are they the property of? They're the property either of men, certainly. They're the property of some men, in particular, the slave-owning men in America. And, you know, this is the reality. And the idea that the courts could overturn something that's so popular and there's not a mass struggle is an indicator that we have a problem. We have a problem, which is that the women's organizations in particular that have done so much good work 
after and before the Roe decision in 1972, the mainstream organizations that are highly resourced and have tons of money, they're all tied to the Democratic Party. They're always raising money to tell people, vote for the Democrats, because if you don't vote for the Democrats, then we could end up having a right-wing president who will you know, stack the court. So here we have a situation where the court is fully stacked. I mean, Ruth Bader Ginsburg decided not to retire, right? And just like Breyer so far is not retiring, that means in each and every instance, the right wing has another possible seat to fill. But why should we live in a country where we depend on whether the Democrats or the Republicans get to name the vacant seats for lifetime appointments of these rich judges to determine whether people will have rights or whether they'll take those rights back. I mean, this is the essence of the problem. The essence of the problem is that we live in a capitalist government, a capitalist so-called justice system, that people's rights are not guaranteed. In order to have real justice and real protection of rights that can't be taken away, we actually need a new system. And we can start with the abolition of the Supreme Court But where are the Democrats right now in doing what they could do when they control the House, the Senate, and the White House? Why not pass legislation right now that doesn't base abortion rights on privacy or talk about what the states can do at different parts of a pregnancy, different time periods? Why can't the Democrats right now pass a law that says women have complete autonomous control over their own bodies. Don't men? I mean, is the government passing laws about what men can do with their bodies? No. There's no forced vasectomies out there. This is 100% an indicator of patriarchy and capitalism in a form of governance that does not guarantee rights. And again, they could be guaranteed with the passage of a law that would make it 100% constitutional. It would make it universal. It would make it national in character. And it couldn't be taken away. That's what we have to do right now is to build a mass movement. And it's not about the Supreme Court right now. It's really about Congress and the Senate and the White House, which is under the control of the Democratic Party. Right. And I mean, the arguments in years past have been you've got to vote for a Democrat. I think you were just talking about, Brian, you've got to vote for a Democrat to make sure that we can protect Roe v. Wade. Well, that didn't work. And right now. You know, if Breyer were to retire, I'm sure we would get the same, you know, nonsense that we've been hearing from Biden and the Democrats about not being able to pass the Build Better Act and the the meaningful provisions in the Build Better Act. So the only thing I have left to do is fight. The only thing I have left to do is is continue to build a strong and fighting women's movement that's independent of the Democratic Party, because those other arguments have clearly shown that they are not going to work. We've got to absolutely force this right into meaning, into law, into being able to actually have this and not like Esther was talking about earlier, not just have this right in DC, not just have this right in New York City, but we've got to actively fight to have this right all over the country. And the Democrats could have done this anytime in the last 40 to 50 years where they also controlled Congress and the White House. I mean, there were several other instances of a political arrangement like this. It's not exactly news that the far right is trying to roll back women's right to abortion. I mean, this has been going on for decades. It's sort of the main animating thing behind a lot of these far right religious organizations. And it's been, as both of you mentioned, you know, a constant fundraising theme 
of Democratic Party electoral campaigns, like the right to abortion is under attack, it's threatened, and you you have to vote for us. Well, I mean, this has been a constant, a constant in U.S. politics for a generation or more. Uh, and the Democrats have just consistently ignored the one thing they could do to actually take this threat off the table, at least in terms of a repeal from the Supreme Court. And I'll just point out very briefly that if you look back at data from ABC News and Washington Post polls that ask, they're a huge omnibus poll, they ask a variety of things. For the past 26 years, this number has stayed very consistent that about 60%, somewhat, you know, give or take five percentage points of the United States populace support abortion rights. Yeah. So some of the activists, you know, rallying outside the Supreme Court last week, they definitely had a broad view of not just the issue of abortion, but just reproductive justice in general. So like you were mentioned, Brian, they understand that some of these same forces, they want to next go after contraception. They understand that these same people on the right, they're not fighting for the child once the child is here, you know, in terms of being pro-life. So I wanted us to play a little piece from Lori Bertram Roberts. She's founder of the Mississippi Reproduction Freedom Fund. And she also heads something called the Yellow Hammer Fund, which assists women in Alabama. She was speaking at one of the rallies sponsored by the Center for Reproductive Rights and and just bringing in these larger issues. We have folks who get abortion funding from us and have to wait six months to get an IUD from the health department. So when these Republicans want to talk about why people have so many abortions, and when y'all out here shouting about black genocide, also, f*** you. Because I don't see y'all out here fighting for better access to birth control. I don't see y'all out here fighting for better access to tandem. Shut the f*** up. I don't see y'all out here fighting for better access to diapers. I don't see y'all out here fighting for better access to housing. I don't never see none of y'all out here at protest. So, you know, there is a movement and maybe many of these organizations are, you know, kind of caught up in the nonprofit industrial complex. But, you know, there are people who we can work with on a grassroots level, you know, and to to who really understand those larger issues around rights and human rights that are connected to abortion and reproductive rights. Let's go on to another, I'd say, pretty major story, and that is the nuclear arms talks between the Iranian government and the other signatories to the JCPOA, the Iran nuclear arms deal. Walter, let's bring people up to date on those discussions. Again, the Iranians are not willing to sit directly with the United States. The United States is there, but sitting in another space because they won't talk to them because the U.S. ripped up the agreement, imposed new, more additional crippling sanctions trying to harm the Iranian people in violation of the accord. That's right, Brian. So this is the first time that nuclear negotiations, negotiations over the future of the Iran nuclear agreement are taking place since the most recent Iranian presidential election, which took place 
earlier this year. So this is the first time that the government of newly elected President Ibrahim Raisi is participating. And the position of the Raisi government is characterized in the corporate media in the United States and elsewhere in the West as being hardline, right? This is a new hardline government taking a tough position in negotiations. But when you look at what they're asking for, I I actually think it's completely reasonable. I mean, what the Raisi government is saying is that you need you the united states needs to lift the sanctions the crippling economic sanctions that are ruining our economy and our people's ability to access basic goods if you lift those sanctions then we will come back into compliance with our side of the nuclear agreement and because the united states was the one to rip up the agreement to walk away the onus is on you to lift those sanctions and then we're back in the deal and their deal is essentially resumed what is under debate, and this is the what I would characterize as the hardline position being taken by the Biden administration, is that they're saying, okay, we'll, we'll lift the sanctions that are related to the nuclear agreement, but all of the other sanctions, of which there are many, 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 all of the other sanctions that were imposed by the Trump administration that were nominally for things unrelated to Iran's nuclear program, it could be because the United States was upset with Iran about something else, those will remain in place because they were never on the table as part of the JCPOA, of the nuclear agreement. Now, obviously, all of those sanctions that were imposed during the Trump administration were designed to make it impossible to revive the nuclear deal. It was part of the same offensive against Iran. It was part of the same maximum pressure policy. And so Iran wants all of those sanctions lifted as well. They want their economy to be unblockaded. Uh, But the Biden administration appears to be unwilling to consider that. Iran may ask for compensation, too, for all of the economic damage that they suffered during those years where the United States was out of compliance with their side of the JCPOA. That's another thing that was newly introduced in this latest round of negotiations in Vienna. So the position of the United States is very, very intransigent, and hopes are not high for the revival of this agreement. Yeah, I think it's unlikely I think it's very, very unlikely. The Iranians are not budging. The Iranians are not going to talk about anything other than the removal of the sanctions that the U.S. put on, where the Biden administration, having either embraced or become captive of all of these right-wing elements within the U.S. establishment, and I would say the elements are certainly dominant, Biden is like, no, let's get a better agreement. A better agreement means more inspections and a more sort of restraint on the Iranian side. Meanwhile, Israel, which is threatening and has carried out numerous terrorist actions against the Iranian government, against Iranian scientists, Israel has nuclear weapons. It has two or 300 nuclear weapons. It does not belong to the Nuclear Non-Proliferation Treaty. No nuclear inspectors have ever come into Israel. They're not allowed to come into Israel. Israel's in violation of international law as a non-signatory to the NPT. Anyway, we're going to keep following this story. I'm not optimistic at all that the Biden administration has either the desire or the courage to go back to the original JCPOA. The only way to get back there would be to lift the sanctions that Trump imposed. But as we could see with Cuba, Trump imposed 243 additional coercive measures against Cuba and ripped up the Obama-Biden normalization process with Cuba. What has Joe Biden done about that? 
nothing except to embrace the same 243 coercive measures. Let's go on to another story. Here's New York Times came out yesterday, Walter, on Ukrainian front, grinding war and weary anticipation of invasion. After eight years in the trenches, Ukrainian soldiers are resigned to the possibility, resigned to the possibility, resigned to the possibility that the Russian military, which dwarfs their own in power and wealth, will come sooner or later. Anyway, thousands are dead. This all started with the coup d'etat that the U.S. and both parties in the U.S., both ruling class parties, supported on February 22nd, 2014. Anyway, Walter, a looming invasion by Russia? Well, I mean, just to begin with the obvious underlying hypocrisy and absurdity of the U.S.'s position, I mean, the United States is complaining about Russian troop movements inside of Russia. Inside of Russia. I mean, the United States sends... Right. They keep moving their soldiers and their troops closer to NATO troops because NATO-supported troops keep coming closer and closer to Russia. How dare they? Right. I mean, the U.S. sends their troops across an ocean into another continent, into another hemisphere. I mean, it's a completely ridiculous, hypocritical position. But also, I mean, to the substance of the charge, I mean, is Russia planning a sneak attack on Ukraine? I mean, to believe that, you would have to believe that the government of Russia is completely suicidal because an overt invasion of Ukraine unprompted, I mean, for just out of the blue, for seemingly no reason. I mean, why Why would Russia do that? Why would Russia do something that will inevitably lead to their, to their annihilation and war? Wait a second, wait a second. Let me ask you in terms of the motive. The argument is being made in the United States that Crimea, which was formerly part of Ukraine in 2014, and also the base for Russia's Black Sea base, its biggest naval base, that the Russian government essentially annexed Crimea. And the means by which the annexation took place was not a military invasion, but the Russians supported independence forces in Crimea who held a referendum and like 90% of the people who are ethnically Russian, culturally Russian, Russian language speakers, they voted to to be with Russia to re-affix Crimea to Russia rather than to Ukraine. So the argument is that these other regions, which is where this war is taking place, are essentially Russian-speaking regions in the east of Ukraine, and that the goal of Russia is to annex that part of Ukraine. Anyway, let's just speak directly to, because that really is the charge. Right, that is the charge. But that too would be taken as virtually an act of war. I mean, The Russian economy was seriously heavily sanctioned in the aftermath of the 2014 coup in Ukraine, which led to Crimea essentially rejoining Russia. I mean, that was, you know, such a massively disruptive event to Russia economically, politically, diplomatically, potentially militarily. I mean, it would be such a wild escalation of the situation to invade and try to annex the Donbass, right? The two regions in eastern Ukraine that have declared themselves to be independent republics. 
So Russia would would not really gain anything from that. Right now, it's a quote unquote frozen conflict, meaning that you know the status quo is disputed, but there's no major changes on the horizon to it. That suits Russia just fine. They're not looking for an escalation of the conflict right now. What they're looking for is a way to halt or at least slow down the eastward march of the NATO military alliance. And Ukraine is constantly trying to join NATO. The other NATO countries don't want to take that step because they know what an explosive move that would be. But I mean, back in June, you know, Zelensky even essentially lied to the world and said, oh, yeah, the U.S. gave us the green light. We're going to go ahead and become an official NATO country. Biden himself, I believe, actually had to come out and, and personally refute that. So that's what they want. I mean, if there are troop movements opposite to Ukraine inside of Russia, it's purely a, a way to develop leverage, essentially, to warn the NATO countries like, hey, if you decide to take this historic escalation of tensions, if you decide to bring Ukraine into the NATO alliance, meaning they would be covered by the mutual defense clause of the treaty, Article 5, that's something that's of existential importance to us. Are they planning an imminent invasion? No way. I want to give just a little historical framing to this, and then we'll move on to another story. And the reason I think it's important is that most people won't know what's actually going on. It seems distant. It seems remote. And Russia has been so thoroughly demonized that people would think, well, they took Crimea. Now Putin is on the march. He wants to invade. No. So what Walter is saying is important and true. The government in Ukraine wants to join NATO. That would mean that NATO, this huge military alliance, would have its forces, including nuclear forces, on the border with Russia. And Ukraine was the second largest republic of the Soviet Union. The second largest. First was Russia. The second biggest was Ukraine. Crimea has always been a part of Russia. It was only in 1954 when Nikita Khrushchev, during the period right after Stalin's death, transferred Crimea on the Black Sea to Ukraine, even though it was Russian speaking. It was part of a way of developing closer relations between Russia and Ukraine as the two most important republics in the Soviet Union. Ukraine had been admitted independently at the demand of the Soviet Union to the UN in 1946. So the Soviet Union was in the UN and so was Ukraine. So Khrushchev transfers Crimea to Ukraine in 1954, but it's no big deal. It's like taking Long Island and giving it to Connecticut rather than New York State because they were one country. And it was also the place where the Russians had their biggest naval base, but it wasn't the Russians, it was the Soviets. And the Soviets were a multinational republic. So now the Soviet Union collapses in 1991. And during that time period, James Baker, who was Secretary of State for the George H.W. Bush administration, meets with Gorbachev, meets with Shevardnadze, who was the foreign minister of the Soviet Union, and guarantees them that if the Soviets don't try to make sort of a confrontation over Eastern Europe and Central Europe at that time, the U.S. will never move NATO eastward. And so Gorbachev, ridiculously, foolishly, oh, that's good, takes the assurance. And then 
The U.S. incorporates the Baltics, the former Soviet republics of Latvia, Lithuania, and Estonia into NATO and keeps moving east, keeps moving in the direction of Russia. The reason I'm saying all of this is Ukraine was the place through which the Nazis invaded the Soviet Union in June 1941. And that invasion, because it was right at the very edge of the Soviet Union, the Soviets lost 26, 27 million people. And the whole goal of Soviet and now Russian foreign policy is to make sure that there's not another, you know, a World War III whereby they're vulnerable. So Russia cannot allow Ukraine to join NATO. And NATO or certain NATO powers are wary, actually, about incorporating Ukraine into NATO because it's so provocative. Like Germany doesn't want to have a huge confrontation with Russia either. Aren't there all these basically Nazi militia in Ukraine? I mean, yes, they were the ones. This struggle in the Donbass and in Crimea started February 22nd, 2014, when Nazis, they were fascists and fascism always had a base in the Ukraine. They seized the government. They dispersed the government. They seized and dispersed the parliament. They created a right-wing government. They illegalized the Russian language. Now, just remember, half the country or the whole East and South are speaking Russian. They took away Russians, the Russian language legal status. And that's when the civil war broke out because they considered the Russian-speaking part of Ukraine to really be culturally you know, sympathetic and connected to Russia. So here we are, the Ukrainian politicians, the Ukrainian military has an interest in inflaming the confrontation with Russia with the hope that it will draw the U.S. into an agreement that NATO will finally come to Ukraine. So it's possible that there could be a bigger war in Ukraine. It is very dangerous, not because Russia wants to take over Ukraine, but Russia doesn't want NATO to take over Ukraine officially and formally allowing NATO troops to come to Russia's border. Anyway, I think the historical framing, especially for Americans, is so important. All right, let's move on to another story. Of course, COVID, 750,000 Americans or people living in the United States are dead compared to 5,000 in China, a country that's four times the size of the United States. But we talked last time about how South African scientists chronicled the development of a new variant of COVID. And because they did, even though most of the cases are now elsewhere, like in Europe, travel restrictions were imposed on South Africa. Anyway, it's come to the United States, to the shores of the United States, predictably. Anyway, what's the latest, Nicole? It's come to the United States. As you said, there have already been 786,000 and more than that, actually, deaths here in the United States since the beginning of the pandemic. It's just that number keeps getting higher every single day. And I do want to note before talking about Omicron that there are many tools that we have. Travel bans are one tool, even though I think they were used cynically in this case. But travel bans are, are one tool that's important. Masks are one tool that's very important. You know, there's a lot of different tools out there, but the vaccine is also one very big tool. And I just wanted to make sure that that listeners had seen, you know, any specific data really looking at the United States and vaccination. And at the moment, 
essentially looking at the daily average of cases between September 26th and October 2nd of this year, so fairly recently, if you're unvaccinated, you are five times as likely as fully vaccinated people to get COVID. And in terms of death, if you're unvaccinated, and this is the same time period, you're 13 times more likely if you're unvaccinated to actually die from COVID than if you're fully vaccinated. So, you know, this is still an issue, an ongoing issue. And the vaccine mandates, the mass mandates that some places have put into place are important. They're important to protect workers. They're important to protect all of us. And the Omicron variant, you know, I will say that I think there's a lot of concern out there about the Omicron variant. And there's obviously a good reason for that. There's a lot of mutations in the Omicron variant way more mutations than we've seen in a lot of the other variants. And that's the reason for concern. It's not that we know yet that it is, you know, more serious in one way or another, that it causes more serious infection. It's not that we know yet whether it escapes the vaccines we already have. We don't know any of that yet, but it could be something that is dangerous. And so people are treating it as such, which is good. Governments are treating it as such. But the one thing that the U.S. government has not been doing, the one thing that the Western governments have not been doing is making it possible for the rest of the world to have access to these vaccines. These vaccines that, as I mentioned, in the United States are being proven to be very, very useful in preventing, absolutely in preventing death and limiting death, but also in preventing cases in the first place. You know, it's the United States and other Western countries are already giving out boosters, booster vaccines, before some countries have even had, you know, the smallest proportion of access Africa has, I think the number is 6% of the people in Africa overall are vaccinated. This is vaccine apartheid. This is, in, in my mind, this is the most important issue. So there was an event on Sunday, two days ago, by the People's Vaccine Alliance. There's a lot of really big organizations in this alliance. And according to new Airfinity data that was examined by the People's Vaccine Alliance, sub-Saharan Africa has thus far received enough vaccine doses to fully inoculate just one in eight people, one in eight people, while rich countries, as I mentioned, and as everyone knows, are already rolling out boosters on a mass scale, which isn't to say you shouldn't go out and get a booster, but it's to look at the clear disparity at what's happening, to look at the clear disparity that will not only deeply impact the lives of people in sub-Saharan Africa and the lives of people in, you know, all over the world that don't have enough access to the vaccine, but that will also impact our lives here in the United States. Because if we don't correct vaccine apartheid, if we don't give access for other people around the world to to get these life-saving vaccines, these variants will keep coming. They will keep coming. And so, you know, this is incredibly important to talk about. It's incredibly important to push for. Another recent analysis from the Financial Times found that wealthy nations have administered far more boosters in just the four months, the last four months of 2021 than low-income countries have given in total doses all year throughout the entire year of 2021. So, you know, the virus doesn't care what income a country is. The virus doesn't care, you know, who created the vaccine. The virus doesn't care who you are. It will continue to spread and it will continue to create worse and worse variants. You know, it will continue to create new variants and we will all be at risk until this is resolved. Yeah, this just underlines what the doctor from the Africa Union said that we played last week, that if this COVID had originated in Africa, there probably wouldn't even have been any development of of any vaccine. It would just been declared the COVID continent 
and the African people would just would have been allowed to just suffer and die. And when you were talking, it just reminded me of all the people who veer toward conspiracy theories because they see that the corporations, these big pharma or these corporations that are creating these vaccines are just really allowed to basically run policy now. You know what I mean? These corporations are running the policy, these people running these and reaping billions in profit. And so it just fuels the idea of this kind of like a criticism of capitalism, but without a progressive remedy for it. Right. (laughs) You know, I think that's exactly right, because under capitalism, the only incentive is money under capitalism. It's profit. So corporations are able under the system to go ahead and just, you know, sell at huge profit these vaccines and not, you know, and make sure that their quote unquote, you know, intellectual property, their quote unquote rights are not being trampled in the rest of the world. When what it really is, is, you know, vaccines have existed and been developed from all sorts of people from all over the world. You know, scientists collaborate. These sorts of things are inherently collaborative and releasing the information on how to create these vaccines would be this life-changing, world-altering event. This would be a huge thing that absolutely corporations could easily do. And the United States government could easily, you know, require corporations to do, but because it is under, we're under a capitalist system, they're not going to do that because profit is the, is the number one thing. And when you're distrusting of corporations, which makes sense to be, if you are in a place where opioids hit really hard, for example, you might think, well, I don't want to get a vaccine from a corporation you know, that dumped opioids in my neighborhood. Well, I understand that. That makes sense. The skepticism is pointed in the wrong direction, though. Like they've made vaccines that are effective because people will continue to take effective vaccines. The thing we have to fight against is vaccine apartheid. That's that's the thing we have to fight against. That is, you know, the ridiculous and deadly and disgusting thing that corporations are doing, not making it in the first place. I think the way to look at it is that if capitalist pharmaceutical companies are producing medicines that people take because they're useful, but they're producing them because they want to make a profit not to heal people and they actually don't care about people. The progressive solution is not to, you know, stop taking Advil when you have a headache because a pharmaceutical company made the Advil. The progressive position is nationalize those companies Take them over. Make sure that medicine is produced to meet human needs, to deal with disease or suffering or pain, to help people get better. The progressive solution is to nationalize and distribute medicine based on need. And of course, part of it, this is the socialist program, is to recognize that there are two worlds. There's not just one world. There's the colonized world or semi-colonized world, and then there's the colonizers. And like in the United States, we live in the imperialist colonizing country. Same with France and Britain and Italy and Germany, Japan. Part of the progressive solution is to make sure that there's a redistribution of world resources to compensate for the fact that Africa and Latin America and the Middle East and the other parts of what were formerly called the third world became poor because of the colonizing policies and systems of the colonizers. So, you know, there is an essence of 
ending vaccine apartheid, but reparations, making a priority, having affirmative action on a global scale. This is a progressive solution, but the idea that because capitalists produce medicines that we use, because like all other industries, the capitalists dominate them, we should be skeptical enough that we don't take them. That's a non-progressive solution. That's a reactionary solution. That's like saying, you know, capitalists created seatbelts, so we shouldn't wear them. Capitalists are making lots of money off of food because agribusiness dominates food. The solution is don't eat. No, this is not a progressive solution. The progressive solution is to socialize and make public that which is now private property. Right. And don't forget that, like you mentioned last week, we still don't have low cost testing in this country. In addition to people not taking the vaccine and in this country, we don't have adequate testing that is low cost. Forget contact tracing. I haven't heard that phrase like like in two years. <laughs> it's just just the policy is all about these vaccines and it's not about a lot of the other measures. Even I think D.C. just reopened like indoor activities with no masks. And that's for business. That's because the gyms are suffering business wise because the people don't want to work out and wear masks and they're not coming to the gyms. So business owners who own the gyms, which too should be made into public property, they're putting pressure on the mayor and she's like, okay, it's another business lobby. I'll kowtow to them. There's no overall policy, you know, no matter how much they want to demonize China, the fact that they are able to centrally plan and have a national policy is the reason why they only have 5,000 deaths still two years later, you know, compared to like we're pushing toward, it will be hitting a million at some point. And for that reason, I mean, I think, I think it doesn't cut it anymore for the Biden administration to just blame Trump to say that the reason why the United States is having such a terrible time trying to contain the coronavirus pandemic is simply because of the horrific policies of the Trump administration. Certainly those have been horrible, but because of exactly what Esther is saying, the lack of a national plan, I mean, that wasn't Donald Trump forcing Joe Biden to fail to come up with a national plan, to fail to come up with a coherent approach that is not broken up into 50 different pieces across the states or, you know, hundreds and hundreds of different pieces across different municipalities and other administrative levels. I mean, that is on Biden. That's on the current administration. And they could have taken action to dramatically rebuild trust. I mean, dramatic action to rebuild trust was absolutely necessary because the trust that people had in the government was totally shattered by the Trump administration. That's true. I mean, who would believe the government after the complete mishandling of the onset of the pandemic? I mean, the Biden administration could have canceled the rents. They could have indefinitely frozen evictions. And they maybe they would need help from the Democrats in Congress on that. But hey, they're supposed to be Democrats. The Biden administration could have permanently suspended the payment of student loan debt. They could have moved to expand or extend the enhanced unemployment benefits that so many people relied on. They didn't do any of that. They want to force people back to work, in fact, because they're representatives of those same business interests. So, yeah, I mean, this goes across the entire political elite in the United States. I mean, there's blood on all of their hands because of this absolute disaster of a response to the pandemic. And I don't know why you're using past tense, Walter. They could still do all those things. And I hope that they do. And I know that they won't. Of course, of course. Unless we fight for them. The one thing I just want to add briefly to build on your point, Walter, is in China, this initial figure is from my recollection. So it may be slightly wrong, but 
in China, the original, like the original outbreak that happened in Wuhan and, you know, in the intervening, like short period of time after that, I believe it was about 4,400, 4,300 deaths, you know, that initial couple of months. So between that initial outbreak and now China has had about 400 deaths, 400, whereas the United States is at almost 800,000 deaths. So your point, Walter, is very good that once Biden got into office, if he had made some of the policies that China had made, you know, having these lockdowns, making sure people still had, you know, making sure people still had a roof over their head during this, canceling rents and any monies for housing, making sure that masks were, you know, all of these things we know, I don't need to list them all out, but all these things we know China has done to do to make sure that people don't die. Maybe we would have had 400 deaths in, you know, since Biden got elected. Instead, we've had tens of hundreds of thousands. You know, maybe we would have had even less because China has about four times the population as us. Maybe we would have had 100 deaths since Biden got elected. But instead, we've had hundreds of thousands. Let's turn to another story. This one really, this one really grabbed me. China seeks first military base on Africa's Atlantic coast. U.S. intelligence finds, quote, get this, Walter, alarmed officials at the White House and the Pentagon urge Equatorial Guinea to rebuff Beijing's overtures. So the U.S. is alarmed. The U.S. is really alarmed that China, the expansionist China, is going to have an Atlantic naval base. And by the way, do you all know how many foreign military bases China does have? I believe the answer is one. Walter is correct. And that one base is where, Walter? It's in Djibouti. Okay, in the Horn of Africa, very close to Ethiopia, Somalia, Eritrea. So according to this article, I'll read a couple sentences and then I want to talk about this. Classified American intelligence reports suggest China intends to establish its first military presence on the Atlantic Ocean in the tiny Central African country of Equatorial Guinea. The officials declined to describe the details of the secret intelligence findings. Of course they did. But they said that the reports raised the prospect that Chinese warships would be able to rearm and refit opposite the east coast of the United States. I know you're getting scared, Esther. A threat that is setting off alarm bells at the White House and the Pentagon, showing that the entire ruling class is alarmed because the Chinese might set up a base. Now, are we sorry? Are we calling quickly Equatorial Guinea as opposite the east coast of the U.S.? Yeah. Do you have a map in front of you? Uh, I have one in my head, and it's not that close. It's Isn't in there. there is ocean? a whole ocean. In I between. think there's a whole ocean, <laughs> ocean in between, like the. You guys are not getting the big picture. You're not. You don't. <laughs> you don't actually sound that alarmed. I don't feel that alarmed, to be honest, Brian. Okay, so this happens at the time that the United States is pursuing what's called the first island chain strategy, right? Where the U.S. is setting up high-powered missiles, latest missile technology, including hypersonic weapons and other new generation nuclear and conventional technologies on a string of islands all around China. So, you look at from Malaysia to Indonesia to the Philippines to Okinawa, Japan, and Borneo, and many other places, the U.S. has what's called the, the first island chain strategy, 
which was developed in the late 1940s to contain China and the Soviet Union. But here's something from antiempire.com. The U.S. will bolster its conventional deterrence deterrence against China, establishing a network of precision strike missiles along the so-called First Island Chain as part of a $27.4 billion in spending to be considered for the Indo-Pacific theater for the next six years, according to these sources. They form the core proposals of what the Pentagon is calling the Pacific Deterrence Initiative that the Pentagon is submitting to Congress. The greatest danger to the future of the United States continues to be an erosion of conventional deterrence, according to a document that the Pentagon submitted. Without a valid and convincing conventional deterrent, China is emboldened to take action in the region, also known as the Pacific, also known as you know, the waters outside of China, and globally to supplant U.S. interests. Now, the U.S. has a thousand military bases, and all of these bases in the islands that I just mentioned, Walter, they're right on China's doorstep. And in fact, the U.S. military doctrine is planning for an air-sea war with China in these countries. And I think that we need to do more, actually, in our show about this. But Walter, I want to get your comments. Yeah, I mean, it's a remarkably dangerous situation, remarkably dangerous. I mean, we could add to the list of escalatory things that the United States has done, the the $1 trillion modernization of its nuclear arsenal, these world-ending weapons. And a big part of this trillion-dollar modernization that was begun under the Obama administration, actually, is making nuclear weapons smaller and therefore more usable tactical, quote-unquote, tactical nuclear weapons that could be used, the Pentagon planners dream, without it escalating into a world-ending nuclear conflict. So yeah, all of the signals from the United States have been have been 100% aggressive towards China. And the idea that, you know, a military installation opposite the east coast of the United States all the way over in Equatorial Guinea would be, you know, this grave threat to the security of the United States is just beyond ridiculous. And going back to this Wall Street Journal article, you know, it's one of those things where the first sentence, the very first sentence in the piece lets you know that everything else that follows is just BS. Classified American intelligence reports suggest China intends to establish. So we have to take the CIA's word that this intelligence exists, right? I don't know why you would trust the CIA. The intelligence that supposedly exists suggests that China is opening it up, right? It's not even saying, yeah, definitely China is working on a military base. I mean, this is just fear-mongering. And, you know, there's an extremely similar storyline in the corporate media about Cambodia, the idea that China is trying to set up a military base in Cambodia. Well, you know, the Cambodian constitution actually prohibits the creation of foreign military bases on its soil. So I don't know about that one. But still, constantly there are reports in the mainstream media in the United States and elsewhere that there is a Chinese plot to set up a military presence in Cambodia. Essentially, I think copying and pasting that same script onto other countries that classified CIA reports suggest might be true. Also, later down in the article... This additional sentence is pretty notable. Quote, the Biden White House has sought to deliver a sharper message. It would be short-sighted of Equatorial Guinea to insert itself between the front lines of U.S.-China global competition, unquote, which is pretty gross. I mean, it's just a threat, right? Like, it's just like the United States, you know, 
is very powerful and you better be careful who you ally with, essentially. Like, that's really gross. Yeah. When the government of Yemen refused to go along with the first U.S. war in Iraq, the U.S. worked with Saudi Arabia to expel hundreds of thousands of Yemeni citizens who were working in Saudi Arabia. And it created the economic devastation in Yemen. And the point was they wanted to make an example out of Yemen. If you're a smaller country and you defy the empire, you're going to pay a heavy price. Now, the people in Okinawa, as we know, have been protesting every day to get U.S. bases out of Japan. There's 12 U.S. military bases in Japan. That's part of the integrated first island chain. Now, I want to make a final point before we move on about this. The Pentagon New Doctrine says that they're fielding an integrated joint force with precision strike networks west of the international dateline along the first island chain, integrated air missile defense in the second island chain, and a distributed force posture that provides the ability to preserve stability and, if needed, dispense and sustain combat operations for extended periods. Okay, if you're living in Okinawa, if you're living in any of these first island nations, that means you're a part of a sacrifice zone. What the U.S. is basically saying is we're going to adopt this super aggressive strategy, ringing China with high-tech precision strike networks of weapons. Also, it'll be part of the Space Command. And the war will take place in your country. Exactly. The war will take place. So congratulations. We're going to call it defense. But you, unfortunately, will have to die because the battle will be in your home. It's not in St. Louis. It's not in Chicago. It's not in Washington. It's in these countries. Now, it seems to me that the U.S. did the same thing in Europe with the positioning of intermediate nuclear weapons in 1981, 82, when Reagan came in. And the Europeans were like, wait, you're putting weapons in our country, nuclear weapons, with a flight time of six minutes to their target in the Soviet Union. Six minutes. So that the Soviet Union had to reorganize its military counterstrike such and to hit and, those countries. And automate it so it would hit those countries. So those countries became sacrifice zones. They're called redundant nations in Pentagon language, redundant nations. Well, you know, I know that you wanted to talk about Pearl Harbor, and I think that this whole mentality started then, where they could drop nuclear weapons on Hiroshima and Nagasaki because they didn't matter. You know, that the people, the hundreds of thousands of people there who would be murdered or maimed just did not matter. And Remember when the U.S. was making all these provocations against North Korea, and I think it was Senator Graham said something like, well, you know, anything we do will happen over there. That's right. I think there's this whole mentality that the U.S. can bomb Asia, you know, Asian countries, Asian people, and it doesn't matter because there'll be no blowback here. It's not happening here. Our cities aren't being wiped out. Our people aren't being murdered in mass. So that's just that whole attitude. And even the whole China policy, the way you see it set up, not only with this whole strategy that you were talking about, but also even with the conflict with Taiwan, still Taiwan becomes a a sacrifice zone. It's everything that will happen will happen over there. Indeed. In the Pentagon strategy, 
Taiwan, Okinawa, and the Philippines are all part of this, what's called the first island chain strategy. So the U.S. says to the Taiwanese, we care about your freedom, but what they really want is the freedom to create Taiwan as the battlefield for its war with China. Again, as you pointed out, Esther, so it's Taiwanese who die, not Americans. And, you know, this, we can't emphasize enough how important this is. And also, we need to build an international movement. Our anti-war movement, we're in the Answer Coalition, our anti-war movement needs to be talking to the people in Taiwan, in Okinawa, in Japan. Korea is not an island, it's a peninsula, but Indonesia, Malaysia, Borneo, all of these areas which are considered redundant or sacrifice zones for the coming major power conflict that the Pentagon is really every day working to promote. When we talk about, as you you know mentioned, Esther, Pearl Harbor and Japan, today is the 80th anniversary of the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, what was known as the Day of Infamy or called the Day of Infamy by Franklin Delano Roosevelt, then president, and that became sort of the mantra. And Japanese Americans were incarcerated, taken to concentration camps, not for something they did, but because they were Japanese. They had their property seized, they were taken, they were put in these camps. And then, Walter, as Esther mentioned, at the end of the war, the U.S. firebombed Tokyo and all of the other Japanese cities, but they kept a couple cities unbombed because they wanted to have a clean sort of evaluation of what the impact of a nuclear bomb would be since one had never been used before. So they saved Hiroshima. They saved Nagasaki. They weren't bombed like the other cities. They wanted to have a clean laboratory experiment. And again, it shows it wasn't really about freedom. It wasn't about protecting Americans. They they wanted to show the world they had a weapon and they wanted to show the world what the weapon could do as a demonstration of American power. Anyway, 80th anniversary, Pearl Harbor. Again, most Americans don't know what World War II was about. Some people might say, oh, wasn't that to defeat fascism or whatever? Or wasn't it revenge for Pearl Harbor? But Walter, real quick, let's talk about the 80th anniversary of the attack on Pearl Harbor. Yeah, I think this is really worth talking about because, you know, it's such a big part of the mythology of the U.S. participation in World War II that it was an act of self-defense after a sneak attack at Pearl Harbor that Japan, out of the blue, attacked the United States and thus the United States had no choice but to enter the war to defend itself and avenge the people who died on that day. That is not the case. I mean, when you look at the real history of what happened, it was clear that the war between the United States and Japan was inevitable under the global system of imperialism. I mean, when kids go to school, they learn the song America the Beautiful. And it has that line in there from sea to shining sea, from sea to shining sea. And that's a reference to the concept of manifest destiny, that the United States began its process of colonization on the East Coast. It conquered the native nations of North America in genocidal fashion, expanding all the way across the continent onto the Pacific Ocean. And then when they got to the Pacific Ocean, when they got to the other shining sea, they didn't say, okay, great, now colonization is over. They said, all right, let's colonize that ocean. Let's conquer that ocean. And so in 1867, the United States bought 
Alaska from the Russian Empire. It was a colony of the Russian Empire, and they received the Aleutian Islands in the Pacific that way. In 1893, the United States organized the overthrow of the monarchy in Hawaii, and that led to Hawaii's official annexation by the United States several years later. In 1898, the United States went to war with the Spanish Empire, and so in the Caribbean, the United States gained the colonies of Cuba and Puerto Rico. And then in the Pacific, the United States gained the colonies of Guam and the Philippines. And they didn't just gain them. They attacked those people and killed upwards of a million Filipinos. That's right. In absolutely genocidal fashion. I mean, over a million Filipinos were murdered by the United States occupation. And then the Philippines became the main base of U.S. imperialism to project power all throughout East Asia. Now, at the same time, Japan emerged as an imperialist power. The decisive moment came in 1905 when the Japanese Empire beat the Russian Empire unexpectedly in a war that led to it consolidating control over Korea. It began expanding more and more into China. Earlier, it had colonized Taiwan. And it, too, saw itself as the natural hegemon, the natural dominant power of East Asia. And they employed similar horrific, brutal, genocidal violence as the United States. And there can only be one dominant power. So this conflict was inevitable. The problem for the United States was a domestic political problem. The war was unpopular. Entering the war was unpopular. So they blockaded Japan's fuel supplies, their oil shipments, provoked this confrontation, and then was able to assert themselves as they wanted to as the sole uncontested imperial force in the Pacific, culminating with the nuclear attacks in Hiroshima and Nagasaki. I mean, that's what that section of World War II was really about. Yeah, earlier the United States and Japan had collaborated. And when the Japanese colonized Korea, the entire Korean peninsula in 1909, the U.S. supported it because Japan recognized that the U.S., was the colonial power over the Philippines. But as Lenin said in his book, Imperialism, the Highest Stage of Capitalism, at a certain point, the world had to be redivided because the entire world was already colonized. And so this U.S.-Japanese rivalry at the beginning of World War II was indeed about the redivision of colonial possessions. Walter, I want to also mention that the U.S., benefited a great deal, really, from the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor because overnight the anti-war sentiment in the country vanished and the Congress unanimously declared war. The last time the U.S. Congress declared war was 1941, by the way. All the other wars are unconstitutional wars because they weren't declared, but that's an aside. Anyway, Walter, I want to just mention that Roosevelt benefited a great deal from the attack politically Here's from the diary of Secretary of War. They used to be called Secretary of War, more honest, sort of imprimatur over the sec now what's called the Secretary of Defense. His name was Henry L. Stimson, his diary, November 25th, 1941. It reads this. He said that FDR, quote, brought up the event that we were likely to be attacked perhaps next Monday, December 1st. This is before Pearl Harbor. For the Japanese are notorious for making an attack without warning. And the question was, what should we do? The question was, how should we maneuver them into the position of firing the first shot without allowing too much danger to ourselves? And 
there's debates, of course, among historians about whether this is definitive proof that, in fact, the U.S. knew that the war was coming and really needed Japan to fire the first shot to rally the American people because then the U.S. could be the victim of aggression rather than taking the country in an aggressor way to war. Let's go to a couple other short stories. Esther, another tragic shooting in Michigan. Mass shooting events, which are you know defined as the shooting of four or more people in a single episode, they happen every day in the United States. But let's talk about what actually happened last week. Yeah, Brian, what I wanted to talk about in relationship to this latest horrible shooting is the fact that we know that four students were killed in at Oxford High School in Michigan. And over the weekend, one of the students, Tate Meyer, who was a football student, was honored along with the other victims, Hannah St. Juliana, Madison Baldwin, and Justin Schilling. They were honored at the University of Michigan football game, big, huge game. And they particularly honored Tate Meyer because he was attempting to stop this 15-year-old shooter from killing more people, from injuring more people. And he was named individually for his action. And I just thought about our conversation last week about Anthony Huber, because this was a young man who was out marching for social justice for Black Lives Matter. And he was not honored as a hero who tried to stop Kyle Rittenhouse. He was slandered during the trial. The judge said that he could be referred to as a rioter, looter, or arsonist. And so that really struck me. And, you know, during this, you know, obviously outpouring of sympathy for the victims and all that whole community. So that was one thing that happened. And then, and then unfortunately today I'm greeted with the news that Republicans in Congress are standing firm against any new gun laws or restrictions in the face of this latest shooting. So. Yeah. Really important. I mean, at a certain point, I don't know whether any gun control measures would make any difference. People are getting guns anyway. There's 400 million guns in the United States or more, many more than there are people. And anyway, I want to visit the issue of guns again in another show, but I think your point is so important. You know, this young man did what we all want to be able to be brave enough to do in the, in a moment of crisis, which is not to worry about your own safety so much as to try to help a situation, solve a situation. And that's, you know, the nature of heroism and bravery. And, you know, he's being honored and it was on television, I believe on national TV because the football game. So it was a big deal. But when you compare it to what Anthony Huber demonized, even people who are saying Kyle Rittenhouse acted in self-defense, which is decontextualized why Kyle Rittenhouse went to Kenosha with a semi-automatic weapon. You know, they never talk about Anthony Huber as if he's the aggressor. He came to a demonstration and he gave his life trying to stop Kyle Rittenhouse from shooting more people. And I, I'm glad you mentioned it. I think it's really, we want to keep remembering Anthony Huber for who he was. Here's another story. We promised everyone that we're going to do a hopeful story every week. This was a demand from Esther. Esther said, look, we talk about so much on the air that's dangerous or negative. Let's talk about things that are hopeful. Here's something hopeful. Air board denies key permit for Mountain Valley Pipeline dealing critical blow 
to beleaguered fracked gas project. Today, in a victory for environmental justice, the Virginia Air Pollution Control Board voted six to one to deny the air quality permit for the proposed Lambert compressor station. The station would have connected the beleaguered Mountain Valley pipeline to a proposed Southgate extension into North Carolina. Had the permit been granted, nearby communities would be subjected to additional air emissions of carbon monoxide, particulate matter 2.5, and formaldehyde. Oh, goodness, I used to work in formaldehyde. Substances known to contribute to respiratory problems, heart disease, and cancer. The permit denial is a victory, a clear victory for communities that were working tirelessly to protect their health and homes from corporate polluters and a major setback for the Mountain Valley Pipeline. I was reading a press release from Appalachian Voices. Their group, the fighters against the Mountain Valley Pipeline, have done a lot. And in the mass media, just in the last week, there's been important stories about the racist nature of this pipeline as well that made it into the Washington Post. Let's go on. Esther, our final story before we turn to Walter. Medicare premiums are going up. Yeah, I just wanted to say really quick because I saw the story about the Medicare premiums going up just over $11 a month, but still, that's a lot of money when you're on a fixed income. And the reason why they're going up is because of that Alzheimer's drug that we already talked about that does not work, Adelheim. And the company Biogen placed a $56,000 per year price on it. And that is why the premium for Medicare is going up for millions of elderly people in the country. And so that's outrageous. And it's also outrageous because at the same time, you know, we've been talking about Build Back Better and we've had these people fighting against expanding the ability of the government to negotiate drug prices. That's a big part of it that the Republicans, these corporations have been fighting. And so this is something we have to keep watching. This is outrageous. And if Biden allows this to go ahead, you know, it will just further weaken his position to be able to just fight for the basic, you know, health care and like, human rights of people here in the country. Yeah. And they took out already of the Build Back Better, right? The ability of the government to negotiate for Medicare recipients, the price of medicines, the price of pharmaceutical products from these pharmaceutical companies. Again, the progressive answer here is to nationalize them. They shouldn't exist. They should be taken over, seized, expropriated, and medicine should be used to meet the needs of people, not the needs of capitalist investors. Walter, liberationnews.org, a socialist website. You are the editor. What are some of the big stories in your newsletter? So one article I definitely want to recommend is titled Defenders of Abortion Rights Rally, a Supreme Court Hears Arguments. This is about those demonstrations that Brian mentioned at the beginning of the show, organized on December 1st in cities across the country. The Party for Socialism and Liberation and other defenders of abortion rights were present, were helping to organize these and to try to spark the kind of mass movement necessary to defend abortion rights. You can check out reports from some of those actions. Another 
article to check out is titled Protesters Sleep in Tents Outside Rhode Island State House Demand Housing. This is about a sit-in, sleep-in, and occupation held by activists to demand action in one of the worst homelessness crises in the country. And another article, this is also about a victory. It's titled Albuquerque Defeats Millionaire Stadium Developers Says No to Gentrification. This is a report on how a group of activists stopped the construction of a taxpayer-subsidized stadium in Albuquerque. This would have dramatically increased gentrification, accelerated gentrification in the city, and made housing even more unaffordable. But it was crushed at the ballot box in this referendum. So as always, go to liberationnews.org every day to check for updates, and you can sign up for a newsletter by clicking on the link at the top. All right, we're going to leave it right there. Tomorrow we'll be back with Professor Richard Wolf, Marxist economist. We talk about the big stories in the economy. On Thursday, we will be back with Carlos Martinez, the author of the book, The End of the Beginning, an Examination of Why the Soviet Union Collapsed. It will be a multi-part series talking about the rise and fall of the Soviet Union and the lessons for socialists. Very important multi-part series. And of course, Nicole, we need people to show support for our show. We bring independent programming three days a week. We're proud of this content. It's independent. It's progressive. It's socialist. It uses news sources. It's a real resource for our progressive movement. But we need people to go to patreon.com forward slash the socialist program. If you're not a subscriber now, please do your part because we can't actually do this without you. We have no corporate or institutional backing. We need your support. You've been listening to The Socialist Program with Brian Becker, where we bring you news and views about the world for those who want to change it. If you enjoyed the show, subscribe on your favorite podcast app and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. And watch video episodes of our in-depth show, The Real Story, every Wednesday at 7 p.m. Eastern on YouTube with our partner, Breakthrough News. We can only continue our work bringing you high-quality news, analysis, and history with the support of our listeners. Connect with us and become a patron at patreon.com slash the socialist program and receive an invitation to participate in an exclusive monthly seminar with Brian Becker. Thank you.